So the title of uh, today's message, I could have just called it Turning the World Upside Down, but I decided to call it Turning an Upside Down World Upside Down, which may be right side up, but I'll let you figure that out yourself. When we think of the idea of the world turning upside down, I wonder what you think of. I think we can all agree that the world does not literally get turned upside down. Um, well, I mean, I guess it, it rotates. But anyway, the world doesn't get turned upside down in that sense where all of a sudden our, our feet are on the ceiling or anything like that. But there are things throughout history that have what we would call, with the expression turning the world upside down, we would say they've turned the world upside down. Uh, in 1964, on this day, February 7th, the Beatles came to America. Now, that certainly turned America upside down. Beatles mania was something else. But that's not a, a world-changing thing. But there are things that we could think about that are so significant, it's almost like the world was turned upside down. We think of modern medicine or uh, the internet or COVID-19. Right, some of these are good, others not so good. Modern medicine, that's a good thing, right? That turns the world upside down. That changes everything. We think of the internet. There's really good things about the internet. The fact that you're hearing me right now, Lord willing, that means the internet's working. But there are untold evils on the internet as well. So some are good, some are good and bad, and some are just bad, like a virus that brings the world to its knees. So these are things that we maybe would describe as turning the world upside down. In our passage this morning, in Acts 17, the early Christians are accused of turning the world upside down. Now this was meant as an accusation, almost an insult, saying these guys are troublemakers. But the accusers were probably more right than they thought. They, they were accusing these guys of turning the world upside down, but these guys were bringing a world-changing message, a message that would turn the world upside down. And so that was true 2,000 years ago, and that's still true today. The same good news that we proclaim is a world-changing piece of news, a world-changing message. It's a message of hope for a world, an upside-down world. But it's a message of hope that turns the world upside-down or right-side-up. And so this morning, we're going to be looking through uh, part of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, this is shortly after, I mean, within the, between teens and 20 years after Jesus had come, uh, lived his ministry of word and deed, died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, and then the church begins. And this is where we're at, our second missionary journey. But we're going to see a bit of a recipe here for how to turn the world upside down based on what Paul does. And so we're going to see that by being present, by proclaiming Christ uh, through celebrating reception and enduring rejection, that the world can be turned upside down. And so whether you're a Christian or not, there's going to be a lot for us to go over this morning and a lot for us to take away. We'll also learn a lot about the importance of God's word, the importance of the Bible, We'll learn from the Bereans that they, they carefully examined the scriptures. And so I pray that we would all approach God's word with humility and eagerness this morning, examining it for truth. Paul wrote, uh, we'll see this morning, uh, part of our story is in Thessalonica. And Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. 
And in uh, the first letter, he wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So I pray that that would be true of us this morning, that we would approach God's word as God's word, not uh, my word, you know, not theories, but as God's word. And these are the only words that have the power to truly turn the world upside down or right side up. And so our big idea this morning, our big idea, all right, I want you to get this, everybody, kids especially here, our big idea is turn the world upside down by proclaiming Christ. Turn the world upside down by proclaiming Christ. So let's dig in. We're in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be doing the first 15 verses. Acts is found in the New Testament, all right? So in the right half of your Bibles, if you flip open, there's some longer books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then after that is the book of Acts. Let's read Acts 17, 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few, or a lot, of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women, again, a lot, not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is God's word. So Luke starts us off with a little bit of uh, geographical context. Uh, He kind of paints the picture for us. 
We see Paul and Silas, they're traveling. They, these guys are always on the move. They're traveling. Uh, they go another 100 miles. We left them in Philippi last week, and they travel another 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was the capital city of uh, the province of Macedonia. It was a large port city, a commercial hub. It was a happening spot. But Paul and Silas and Timothy, we see these guys, they are hard workers. We've seen them cover thousands of miles at this point between the first and second missionary journeys. Thousands of miles with no restful resort waiting for them as, uh, you know, benchmarks or or, uh, places to rest. We also see that this is hazardous work. This is, um, this is just tough going, not just physically, but in a lot of ways. I mean, we can be encouraged. Luke gives us so many reports of the gospel, this good news exploding. The church is growing. Many are added to the faith, but we also see that these Christians are beaten. They're stoned, like thrown rocks at them, stoned uh, to the point of near death. We see them put in prison. We see them driven out of town over and over. And so this is where we're at today. They are driven out of town and they land in Thessalonica. But they press on. They know there are costs to this work and they weigh those costs and they're gladly taken to take the gospel out. And so again, this being driven out of town, this is the same pattern we see here, right? They were beaten. uh, They were wrongfully imprisoned. And then those in Philippi say, hey, can you move along? And so they're, they're on the road again, and they're in Thessalonica. And then we'll see this exact same pattern happens. They get uh, chased out of town, essentially. Then they're in Berea, chased out of town. And then next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll see them in Athens. But as we go through and watch Paul's pattern of evangelism through Thessalonica and Berea, we'll also see a bit of a how-to picture of turning the world upside down. And so the first ingredient of turning the world upside down is being present. Be present. We see this from Paul. We see him interacting with people, actual people. He was involved in people's lives. His first stop was to the synagogue. We've seen this pattern before. We've talked about this before. But his first stop was the synagogue. Luke describes it as his custom. That's his default position. What else could Paul do? Well, go to the synagogue. There's a part of this that's practical. There's a part of this that just makes sense. That's where people congregate. Uh, Not just any people. These are Jews that congregate in the synagogue. These are Jews that... They have the Old Testament. They've, they've been, uh, they worship God, but they're waiting for a Savior. They're waiting for a Messiah. And Paul knew, without a doubt, this Savior had come. Paul had the answer to what they were looking for. He had an answer to uh, what they were hoping for. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But whether it's a synagogue or not, we see that's Paul's pattern to be present, right? In Philippi, they're didn't appear to be a synagogue, so he hung out by the river. That's where people congregated. Next week, uh, when we see him in Athens, he goes to the synagogue, but he also goes to the marketplace. Paul was present. He was not the type of Christian that just sat in his house, uh, twiddling his thumbs, afraid of ridicule, and you know, saying to people, you know, I'm just going to live uh, my truth, you do you. As the opposite of Paul's evangelistic strategy, His pattern was to be present, to make points of contact with people. And so I'd ask you this morning, 
If you're a Christian, what are your points of contact with people? Where do you work, play, live, and rest? Who has God placed in your life? Where is God telling you to go to have these points of contact? Lockdowns have perfected, I'd say, our our already near-perfect skill as Canadians of keeping to ourselves. You know, we drive home right into the garage, sneak into our house, stay hunkered down uh, until we get back in the car and drive away and see as few people as possible in, in between those times. But this is not Paul's pattern. He's present with people. I'm not saying you need to be this wild extrovert for this. That's not what I'm saying. But being present demonstrates love for people, being present in people's lives. And so, whoever you are, find people in your neighborhood, in your city. Serve in the schools, shelters, senior homes, you know, coach a sports team. Be involved in people's lives. Find ways to build bridges and be present, just like Paul. COVID has certainly thrown a curveball into our being present with people. But get creative. <laughs> you want to see curveballs? Read about Paul. Right, the guy's chased out of town. He's beaten up. That's a curveball. But find ways that we can connect with people now. Phone somebody. Write a letter to someone. Drop off a meal to someone. Ask someone to read the Bible with you. <laughs> what? what was that last one? Ask someone to read the Bible with you. I'm serious. Imagine the potential if we did that. I mean, what are they going to say? No? Maybe. But they might say yes. Imagine the impact that that would have. And all for the small expense of maybe an uncomfortable conversation. I'm ashamed that that is the stumbling block for me to do that. So find out whatever it is for you. But let's learn from Paul. Let's be present. And so it's not just being present. We see the next ingredient as well. Being present and proclaiming Christ. Proclaim Christ. We don't have a full transcript uh, at the beginning of Acts 17 here of everything Paul said. I'm sure. I mean, it says he was there for three Sabbaths. He was there for three weeks in the synagogue, but from his writings to the Thessalonians, he was, he, it appears he was there much longer. So we don't have a full transcript of everything that came out of Paul's mouth at this time, but Luke does give us some words to describe Paul's interaction with the Jews here. We see this in verse 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This is significant. Paul went in, he reasoned, explained, and proved the Scriptures. Even today, a lot of people know Bible stories, but they don't know how it all fits together. They don't know the story of redemptive history, the story of God redeeming his people. And so when we are present, by being present, when we're present, we need to take every opportunity to prove, to explain, to reason with people from scriptures, to share the storyline of God's redemption of his people. 
Now, this doesn't mean it needs to be a cold and formulaic thing. This is the greatest story ever told. The Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15, says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here it is, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So giving people a reason for the hope that is in us, that's what this proclaiming Christ is all about. This is not a memorized test question. This is the hope that is in you. And so pray that God would give you a richer appreciation of the gospel. That when you are asked or an opportunity presents itself to share the hope, it really is the hope that is in you. Now, just because it's not a memorized test answer doesn't mean that we can't uh, carefully prepare. doesn't mean we should think about, how to, uh, about clarity. Careful preparation does not quench the Holy Spirit of his power. And so, uh, you don't need to use these exact words, but the ingredients need to be there when we proclaim Christ, when we share the gospel. And so, I'm going to give you four words here, and then we're going to work through them one at a time. God, man, Christ, response. Four words, God, man, Christ, response. So let's unpack those in light of Acts 17. So let's start with God. All right, let's start with God. Paul is reasoning, again, not from theories, not from his opinion, but from Scripture. Scripture starts with and is filled with the story of one God who is perfect and holy. All right, now kids, this is, if you're still there, uh, kids, this is for you, all right? This is for everybody. The truths are here, but kids, we're going to talk about a few of the catechism questions, okay, as we look through God, man, Christ response. So the one question we've gone through already, I think this was week two, week two of the catechism, what is God? That's a good question. Kids, I'm leaving an awkward moment of silence here. What is God? They're probably singing at home right now. Well, the answer to that question, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. It's really hard for me to read these and not sing them because on the app, there's songs to the answers here. I could sing, but it would not be good for anybody here. Uh, What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. God created all things and his creation was very good. Part of his creation, if he created... He's the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Part of his creation was humanity, was people. And so that's another one of our catechism questions. So kids, how and why did God create us? How and why did God create us? Giving you a moment. This might be awkward for everyone else. Well, the answer to that question, how and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. Now, this week's question, starting, I don't know when you start, today or tomorrow, but this week's question is, how do we glorify God? That's what we just talked about. We're made in his image to glorify him. How do we glorify God? So this is this week's question, kids. The answer is by loving him and by obeying his commands and laws. How do we glorify God? By loving him and by obeying his commands and laws. So, so far, this, is, this seems good, right? This is, this is all good. 
Well, it's all good when we're talking about God, but things start to go a little squirrely when we start talking about our second word, man. That's our second word, God, man, or humanity. A question that's going to be coming up later uh, is this. When we talk about glorifying God, how do we do that? By loving him and by obeying his commands and laws. And a question we'll get to in a couple weeks. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what is sin? Well, that's question 16 coming up. What is sin? Well, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. And so the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul, sinner. The Jews he's talking to, sinner. The Greeks that listen in, sinners. Me, a sinner. You, a sinner. We have gone against God. We have rebelled against him. We can't measure up to God's holy, perfect standard that separates us from God. The law and our sin reveals God's holiness and man's depravity. We can't measure up. We see our sinful nature, and this all exposes our need for a Savior. And so this is God, man, and to be honest, things are looking kind of bleak right now. Things are, seem like bad news, but here's the good news. God, man, Christ God mercifully sent his only son to come and redeem us in our need. That separation we sang before, how great the chasm that lay between us, between us and God. God mercifully saw us in our need and he sent Jesus. And Jesus came as a man to redeem humanity, to be sinless. He's the only person that ever lived without sin. Yet he's the one who died and bore the weight of sin. He died paying the penalty of sin on our behalf. He took all of our sin on his shoulders. And so this is what Paul's explaining in verse 3. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Jesus is this Messiah that these Jews have been waiting for. He is the savior of the world, uh, the problem to the, or the solution to the biggest problem in the world. Paul is proclaiming that this separation between us and God has been bridged. Jesus died for you. He died for me. He died for Paul and he died for Paul's audience. Amazingly though, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. The price had been paid. God's wrath had been satisfied. And this leaves us with God, man, Christ, and a response. We are called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent, turn from sin, and believe in Jesus. Accept this free gift of grace. Jesus crediting his righteousness to you in exchange for all of your wrongs. That exchange, I'll tell you, it doesn't make sense. But that's the beautiful thing about this good news. This is why it's good news. God, man, Christ response. That is the gospel. That is good news. 
And so if you're listening in and you've never heard this before or you're listening in and you understand, God, man, yeah, I get this. Okay, Christ, yeah, I've heard about the, I, you know, Christmas and Easter. I'm all about that. But there's been no response. Today could be that day for you to respond, to repent and believe in Jesus as your Savior. This is not a trap. This is not a trick. There is nothing to hide. Look at the Bereans later. They examine the scriptures to see if these things are true. Again, these are not my words. This is God's word. This is not an as-is ad on Kijiji or a sight-unseen thing. So I would encourage you, do some digging. Examine the scriptures. See if these things are so. The Bible, as I said before, is, is, and the gospel is so deep and rich. So deep and rich. One of my favorite songs right now talks about God's grace being a well too deep to fathom. But it's also so simple and clear. There is clarity in Scripture. The Bible can be understood rightly, and not only by scholars, but anyone who reads diligently and eagerly dependent on God for help. So go to his word. Don't have this, this false idea in your mind of what this good news is. And so whoever's listening, I'd encourage you to examine the scriptures daily, like the Bereans. We don't graduate from the gospel. So Christians, you too. We want to learn from this Berean devotion to the word. And I love that Luke describes it as daily. They were in the word. Uh, I thank the person who I'm talking about knows who they are. They steered me to this guy, George Mueller. And so I was reading a biography this week uh, from George Mueller. And he spoke about finding joy in God's word by being immersed in scripture, immersed in scripture. When he was 71, he wrote these words to some young believers. It's a long quote, so bear with me, but it's worth it. He said this, kind of an Abe Lincoln kind of looking guy with white hair, but George Mueller said, now, in brotherly love and affection, I would, give you a f- uh, I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue, that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. Especially, we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately, for the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now, I've been doing this for 47 years. I've read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus, my peace and joy have been increased more and more. And so whether you've read the Bible 100 times or you've literally never read a word, let's learn from the Bereans. Let's examine the scriptures daily to find out if these things are true. And so we've seen the ingredients so far, right? The big mixing pot of turning the world upside down, being present, proclaiming Christ. Now we see 
celebrating reception and enduring rejection. We see many respond to this good news by trusting Jesus. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Right, or verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. I love this too. The gospel is for all people, a theme that we've seen through the book of Acts already. But we see Jews, Greeks, men, women. This is the world turning upside down. We see lives changed. These are real people. We see churches planted. Again, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first group of people we looked at, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7, says this when he's talking about them, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We see that the gospel is changing people's lives. Now, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Uh, we, we see that too. We see them celebrating reception, but enduring rejection. Some of the Jewish leaders, you know, they get pretty rattled. They're jealous. They're afraid of losing control. And so they rally up this mob. And Paul and Silas, they were staying with Jason. Uh, but they must have known of the trouble, and so they, they got out of there. They moved on. Uh, but Jason and some of the others were dragged out in front of the city authorities. And this is no slap on the wrist accusation either. Right? This accusation of turning the world upside down. And then what they go on to say, they're really accusing them of treason. This is serious. This is like death sentence type accusations. They're saying by saying Jesus is king, you are acting against Caesar. Now this tension, I mean, it still exists. Jesus is without a doubt our king. But this doesn't turn into a default position of rebellion against the governing authorities. The Bible talks about how the authorities are appointed by God. We must pray for them and submit to them as long as we can do that without sinning against King Jesus. And so the mob inciting leaders, you know, they, okay, they get Jason and, and the others to, to pay, you know, they bail out. But they also follow Paul and Silas and Timothy. They, they chase them down. They continue on. Right? They follow them to Berea, and again, they cause riots. They cause trouble. With the help of some other Christians, we see Paul gets out of town again. Now, Paul seems to be the center of the situation here, the one that's causing the most trouble, turning the world upside down the most, I guess, to these Jewish religious leaders. Um, but again, we see him chased out of town. Now, we may not be chased out of town, you know, soon or ever, but we will certainly face rejection. We will certainly face mockery or worse. And so we need to be ready to both celebrate reception and to endure rejection. 
If we're present and we're proclaiming Christ, it's inevitable. I love this quote by J.I. Packer. Again, I got the long quotes today, but here's another one. If, as is usual, it is the fear of being thought odd and ridiculous or of losing popularity in certain circles that holds us back, we need to ask ourselves in the presence of God, ought these things to stop us loving our neighbor? If it is a false shame, which is not shame at all, but pride in disguise that keeps our tongue from Christian witness when we are with other people, we need to press on our conscience this question, which matters more, our reputation or their salvation? That's a big question that punches me right in the face. Which matters more, our reputation or their salvation? If we're being present and we're proclaiming Christ, we will uh, meet at that question. What matters more, our reputation or their salvation? But we see this recipe, right? This big mixing pot of turning the world upside down. You know, a little be present, a little proclaiming Christ, a little celebration of reception, a little endurance through rejection. But we see through this whole passage that God's word is central to these stories. And God's word is central to our story today. And so I hope we can all humbly approach Scripture to examine if these things are true. This is not a ploy. This is a call. And so if you're not a Christian, do you know what you're even rejecting? And so I would encourage you, like the Bereans, it says they were noble. They took an honest, humble look. Okay, what is this Bible thing all about? What is the gospel? What is Christianity? They asked questions. They dug deep. So I'd encourage you, examine these claims. Don't just take my word for it. Take God's word for it. This is an important thing. It takes a lot of faith to not believe in anything. So consider what the Bible has to say about you, about God, about man, you, humanity, about Christ, and what it means to respond. And to the Christian, I would say, honestly, do the same thing. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Examine the scriptures daily. Right? Be present with people. Proclaim Christ. Celebrate reception. Endure rejection. Now, turning the world upside down, I can almost guarantee, is not going to mean fame or fortune or notability. Turning the world upside down means faithful service to our King. A New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, wrote a book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It's the story of his dad, Tom. Tom Carson. He's a church planter and pastor from Quebec. And his dad, Tom, dedicated his life, his entire life, to faithful service through incredibly challenging circumstances. He never rose to fame, never rose to what you would call worldly success. He never saw his church grow bigger than even Heritage Grace, brand new church plant, is. This, though, is a noble standard to be an ordinary Christian, to faithfully plod through our lives, serving God with everything we have and partnering on a mission that turns the world upside down. 
So the last words of this book were this. Just listen and reflect on these words. Tom Carson never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on the television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so Tom Carson, George Mueller, Paul, and Silas, and so many others have demonstrated the work of being present, the work of proclaiming Christ, the work of celebrating reception and facing a lifetime of rejection. So let's join these ranks and turn this upside-down world upside-down by proclaiming Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rich truths that we find that we could never plumb the depths a well too deep to fathom. God, your grace is amazing. So I pray that you would give us all strength to, and wisdom to approach your word with humility, to examine it for um, what you have to say. God, I pray that you would open the hearts of those hearing my words right now, that we would all be changed by the good news, by the gospel, and that you would help us as a church, as Christians, to be present, to really love people, to proclaim Christ, give us boldness. God, help us to faithfully celebrate reception, but endure rejection, a lifetime of rejection if need be. God, we love you. And we do long to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray that you would be glorified in our lives and in this church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.